0: Welcome to another episode of Rambling with Ryu. I'm Bean. And I'm Nancy. And we have a very special guest here with us today, and we're going to talk about some awesome things. So we're
1: here with Monica Gorsini. She's a professor at the University of Alberta in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. She's the director of the Sensory Motor Rehab Neuroscience Group. She currently runs the Motor Control Laboratory at the University of Alberta... The main goal of her research is to understand the neuronal mechanisms that mediate the development of spasticity and motor dysfunction in the groups of spinal cord injury and cerebral palsy. So welcome, Monica.
2: Hi, thanks so much. It's great to be here.
1: So now we're going to ask you a couple of questions. So what inspired you to get into the field?
2: Well, I guess as a high school student, I was always really interested in science and biology. And um, I used to play a lot of baseball when I was a kid, and I'd always dislocate my thumb. So my mom would send me to the chiropractor's office, and so I'd always sit there. And, and on the wall there was this great picture of um, the human uh, nervous system. So the spinal cord and all the ner- neurons and nerves coming into and out of the spinal cord. And uh, so just looking at that picture, I was like, yeah, I really want to figure out how all that stuff works. You know, how do those things, you know, control movement? And you know, how, what happens after spinal cord injury? And how can we, you know, help people with uh, injuries, you know, get better? So I was, I was pretty much 16 years old when I kind of knew that, you know, this is sort of the area that I wanted to, to do. And then so when I went to university, there was a really uh, good professor there. His name was Michael uh, John Brooks, and he was really into motor control. And uh, so I spent some time in his lab and uh, just continued on. And actually, there was about four or five profs in Alberta right now that actually worked with this guy, John Brooks. And we all came to uh, Alberta Uh, beginning of, uh, you know, in the 90s, and and have set up labs here.
1: That's awesome. So what was your exposure to spinal cord injury?
2: None, actually, when I was growing up, um, and even in university. Uh, So my first exposure was when I started doing uh, experiments with people's spinal cord injuries after uh, I did my postdoc. So I mainly did work with uh, animals in my um, PhD and in my postdoc. But in my second half of my postdoc, that's when I came back to Edmonton, and I uh, started doing human experiments because the animal experiments—I um, was really inspired by those. But I wanted to see if we could translate those findings into the human. And um, you know, I always had that goal of uh, helping spawn cord injury, and that's when I started to uh, do uh, experiments with people with spawn cord injuries.
1: Very cool. So, what excites you about this field? What gets you to, up to come to work every single day?
2: Just always the questions of you know how do things work? You know, ever. Uh, Since I was uh, young, I always wanted to know how things work and What's kind of interesting and exciting nowadays is all of the new um, techniques in the animal uh, work, so you have a lot of these new genetic tools that we can use to either activate or inhibit specific neurons in the spinal cord and all of this new information is really driving um, what we want to figure out in the human and some of the possibilities for um, understanding spasticity and understanding how we can better um, you know, recover motor function um, after injury, both in the spinal cord and um, you know, in cerebral palsy where you have damage uh, up, and up in the brain.
1: So that's a nice segue into our next question of what is spasticity?
2: Sure. Well, essentially spasticity is any involuntary muscle activation. And this can be either a muscle spasm, uh, can be clonus, where you have the scissoring of your leg. It can be tremor, and it's triggered either by uh, cold, stretch, um, cutaneous inputs, and of course, you know, spasticity can be either uh, bothersome in that it can uh, impede residual movements, create pain, wake you up at night. But in other cases, spasticity can be good, where it can help you uh, stand,
0: help with transfers. So,
1: Bean, do you have any questions about spasticity from the perspective of a
0: client, as someone
1: who experiences spasticity?
0: Yeah, so do you know what causes it?
2: Yeah, it's different causes depending on the injury. So, in spinal cord injury, we know a little bit more about spasticity after uh, spinal cord injury because there's been such good animal models that we're able to investigate it in. Mm -hmm. So, there's a couple of, you know, variety of um, things that are happening. So... After spinal cord injury, the one thing that's left to activate the spinal cord, especially if you have a complete injury, are sensory inputs from the body. So those sensory inputs come, activate the spinal cord, and the spinal cord now has less inhibitory uh, control mechanisms, and so that sensory input overactivates the, the spinal cord. And you also have um, excessive excitation of the neurons in the spinal cord. Because now they don't have these inputs from the brain anymore to dampen them down and give them excitation. And now they're relying more on these sensory inputs to activate themselves. And so they have more of an exaggerated response um, to the inputs that they're getting. And you can even have asbestos and incomplete injury, So it may be residual inputs from the brain that can trigger these things as well.
0: Okay, so I have severe spasticity in my legs, and I was taking antispasm medications for four years before weaning myself off, only to realize that they didn't, hadn't helped me at all. How are antispasm medications supposed to work, and have you done any of this research?
2: Yeah, actually, that's what we're doing right now. Um, so there's a lot of different inhibitory mechanisms in the spinal cord, and the antispastic medications are geared to activating them, and they're geared to activating specific receptors, But yet, there's so many different types of receptors, inhibitory receptors in the spinal cord, that um, an antispastic medication like baclofen, it will specifically activate a GABA-B receptor. And so you're taking this oral GABA-B agonist and trying to activate more of these um, GABA-B receptors to then tone down the excitability of the... um, the sensory inputs that are coming into the spinal cord. And hopefully then that will decrease the activation of the motor neurons that then activate your muscles. But there's other types of receptors, inhibitory receptors called GABA-A receptors, mm-hmm. and it's um, difficult to develop drugs for those ones because then if you give um, a receptor that activates those, then you might get you know huge amounts of um, sleepiness. Or if you, um, But we're also finding that these GABA A receptors actually um, increase the excitability of the afferents coming into the spinal cord. Okay. So it's kind of opposite to what the GABA B receptors do. And if you give a, um, a drug that blocks these GABA A receptors, because you also have them up in your brain, you might induce seizures. So that's the difficult thing, but what we found in the animal model is that there's a particular type of GABA a receptor that, if you block it, doesn't produce the seizures. It's a special kind of GABA a receptor, and they've done some studies in people with stroke, um, and they've shown that this drug is safe. And what we wanted to do is um, use this drug in spastic patients to see if it could help, help reduce the spasticity as well. But unfortunately, the company who makes this drug is not making it anymore because the clinical trial in the stroke subjects um, uh, wasn't successful. So they they passed a safety one that was no problem, but the efficacy trial, or it's called a phase two trial, didn't show that the stroke patients um, had better motor recovery after they took it. So our challenge now is to try to get this compound made elsewhere and try it in in patients with spinal cord injury. But first, what we need to do is replicate the findings in the animals to make sure that a similar mechanism is happening where, um, so in the animals, there's an excessive activation of this GABA-A receptor. And so we need to find out now in humans, um, is there a similar type of thing happening?
0: I want to be a part of this study.
2: Great. (laughs)
0: Another question I have is, are you able to induce spasticity?
2: Oh sure, with sensory input. So any input that's going to activate the circuits in the spinal cord will um, induce spasticity because you've got all you can create this excitation, but you have the absence of an inhibitory control mechanism, and in that way you um, induce the spasticity. And interestingly, after spinal cord injury, you're not that spastic right after the injury, but then it develops over the you know the next couple of months. And we found the reason for that is because there's these receptors on the motor neurons that normally they require um, compounds like 5-HT serotonin. So when you're, um people with uh, depression take something like Prozac, and that is thought to increase the levels of 5-HT. Now, these 5-HT, they come from neurons in the Mm brainstem. And so when you have a spinal cord injury, that um, removes this input of serotonin from the brainstem. But after a couple of months after injury, these serotonin receptors start to become active without serotonin. They just become active by themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's how spasticity gradually develops when these receptors start to become reactivated again. Now you can take a drug that um, reduces the activity of the serotonin receptor, and that's called cyproheptadine, which is another antispastic drug that's used in um, spinal cord injury. But it again has side effects as well. It increases your appetite. And so because you have 5-HT receptors elsewhere in the gut in, in the in the brain and things like that, so it hasn't been a very popular antispastic drug, Mm -hmm. so our approach is to try to develop um, pharmacological methods that get these GABA receptors um, that might have then um, fewer side effects.
0: So if you can elicit spasticity, can you target where that spasticity is going to be? So my My specific question is with my obliques. My left obliques are way stronger and have been spasming since a month after I was paralyzed almost eight years ago. My right ones are not, so it has really shifted my pelvis and my ribs have flared. So I want spasticity on my right side, and I want it to stop on my left side. I know I'm being very specific, but is this something that could be possible, if not now, maybe in the future? Right.
2: So maybe, you know, with after spinal cord injury, you have your initial damage but then afterwards you have plastic changes that happen. So it could be with your particular injury, you might have had more abnormal plasticity happening in the more spastic side, or did you have perhaps um, some damage to the sensory fibers entering into the spinal cord? Because you're going to have damage to the spinal cord and to those peripheral inputs coming into your spinal cords. You might have a little bit of excessive um, information coming in to that spastic side so there might be a little bit more of that driving the spasticity so how do you strengthen then the other side we well, could potentially electrically stimulate to artificially activate more of those inputs to balance things out and that's the other question you know what does continued fes do for the alleviation of spasticity so the spinal cord is always craving activity and does fes help to provide that activity so that it tones down the hyperexcitability of the interneurons and the motor neurons within the spinal cord. And looking at the studies published on that, some say yes, some say no, because what FES does as well is it increases the bulk of the muscle. So the contractions, when they do occur, are stronger, are more forceful. Um, but do they really then um, dampen down the, the number of the spasms? and um, you know, the, the inappropriate activation of those muscles, that needs to be looked at a little bit
0: better. Yeah. So I know that I found with myself doing FES regularly, it definitely did help with my spasticity. Um, my legs felt a lot lo- more loosey-goosey for a lot longer after doing FES than they, had, than they would be had I not done it. Um, and I have been stimming my abs quite regularly. I just wanted to know if I can shock them or do something to make my right side stronger.
1: Here I think it's important to talk about the difference between motor control versus spasticity, because once you've had an injury, how do you interpret that? How do you know what is what?
2: Right, because you can confuse, you know, recovery of volitional motor activity by voluntarily triggering a spasm. So it's motor activation that's a little bit more than what you can do voluntarily, but if you, you know, shift your posture, um, press on something, that will activate sensory inputs, and then you'll get a contraction. Um, and that can um, you know be a voluntarily induced spasm as well. And the other interesting thing thing, thing I like to plug FES, but what it also will be found also from the animal studies is that FES will help to oxygenate the spinal cord. So one of the um, maladaptive things that happens after injury, is that the cells that control the dilation of your vessels in the spinal cord, they get hyperexcitable as well. And when you use FES, they then um, uh, disactivate these cells and so that the um, flow increases to the spinal cord. And that's one of the benefits of uh, reperfusing the spinal cord. And that, I think, and that's what we're looking at with the animals and moving into human studies as well, is um, electrical stimulation that provides the sensory input, is it helping to reduce some of the maladaptive changes because of a lack of oxygenation? Because you're going to have, um, you know, responses of the neurons in, in the cord as well to this lowered level of oxygen. And uh, is that then helping to, you know, um, exacerbate spasticity and uh, motor weakness after after injury?
1: You've been talking about how the activation of spasticity is from external stimulus, and now we've been talking about uh, FES, which is also that external stimulus. So, how does that work? How does FES reduce spasticity because it is that input?
2: Right. So, is it because that when you get a more patterned input into the spinal cord that mimics the input that you used to get when you were ambulatory or when you did a lot of motor function volitionally? is that then reducing some of the maladaptive changes in the neural circuits that start to then change and become more excitable because they have less inputs. And so they're going to say, okay, well, if you're not going to excite me, I'm going to excite myself. And, um, and so it does a patterned input then tend to tone some of that um, response down?
1: Awesome. I mean, I know at Ryu we talk about spasticity as a very disorganized nervous system, and when we're giving sensory input, it is with the intention of organization.
2: Exactly. Yeah, that's the exact um, you know, thought behind it, even in the animal
1: studies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's kind of spasticity in a nutshell. I know we talked about a lot and a whole bunch of different uh, things with regards to spinal cord injury. Now for cerebral palsy, how does spasticity differ?
2: Right, so the big difference is that the neuronal damage, of course, happens during development, so when the baby's in the womb or shortly after birth. And what um, seems to happen is that you have a system where the muscles are growing, the bones are growing, and in cerebral palsy, when you have a reduction of the inputs from the brain, the muscles start to atrophy. And so they, get to, they start to um, decrease in size. But yet, the child's bones are still growing at a normal rate. And so you have this mismatch between the um, size of the muscle and the size of the bone. And you get then uh, development of things like contractures. So your muscles are um, uh, different and they um, develop differently. And that, in turn, might also give um, different input signals to the spinal cord. Um, there's also contractures in spinal cord injury as well. Uh, but in CP, I think it's um, more, more severe, more problematic. And you also have more <coughs> spared connections from the brain to the spinal cord in cerebral palsy. So is some of the spastic motor movements a result of Uh, discontrol or an abnormal control in those descending um, activation of the spinal cord with cerebral palsy. And we've also shown, too, that there is some abnormal activation from peripheral sensory inputs as well. So cerebral palsy has uh, multiple, probably multiple factors, too, to produce a different type of spasticity um, that involves a lot more of muscle contractures, potentially abnormal activation of the spinal cord, and also potentially um, abnormal, an abnormal way in which the neurons process sensory information. But we don't know as much about spasticity and cerebral palsy because there wasn't a very good animal model of cerebral palsy. Um, I'm working with a lady in um, Kathy Quinlan, in uh, Rhode Island, who has a rabbit model of cerebral palsy. So she um, constricts the uterine artery to the mother rabbit, and about half of the baby rabbits are born with severe um, hyperreflexia. And so from there, she's able to take out the spinal cords and uh, record from them and compare them to the rabbits that don't have hyperreflexia. And, uh, and I can uh, also do similar um, measurements in children with cerebral palsy and looking at their activation of their motor neurons to see if we see any similarities, um, and try to understand a bit more in depth the mechanism of the, uh, of the spasticity like we've been, uh, doing for a spinal cord injury.
1: So would you say one of the major differences between spinal cord injury and cerebral palsy spasticity is the disruption versus the abnormal pathways?
2: That's hard to know, because yeah, we we really don't know fully um, exactly um, how the the, how the activation of those descending pathways are abnormal um, compared to spinal cord injury, because you've got both you know you've got both the sensory inputs that are maybe abnormal and the descending inputs maybe that are abnormal. So yeah, that's that's a tough question to ask right now. (laughs) Yep, exactly. And I think that the the GPs always ask that question too.
1: And it's good to know we're working towards an answer, but currently we don't have one.
2: Right. Because, um, you know, one of the treatments for spasticity and cerebral palsy is to uh, inject Botox into the muscle. And you're effectively weakening an already weak muscle. But the GPs, you know, they, they see some benefit. And so what their question is is, well, if I you know, uh, weaken a muscle, then does that remove some of the spasticity so that then the patient can um, produce a better patterning of activation of that muscle without the spasticity interfering? And we just really don't know if that's how it's working or if it's working that way.
0: Have there been studies done with Botox and spasticity?
2: Yes, um, in children with CP, in spinal cord injury as well. But in terms of uh, really quantifying the increase in motor performance, it hasn't been studied as well. So there's a lot of it has been with uh, clinical observation, um, but nothing that is um, very detailed to this point.
1: So some other individuals may consider bracing or AFOs, that kind of thing, for the treatment of spasticity. Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Right. So um, Janie Yang uh, that I work with at the U of A, she works with um, young children with cerebral palsy to um, do constraint-induced therapy in in the lower legs. And um, their their theory, their idea is to activate the muscle as much as you can. And so they uh, recommend that the children that they're working with not to use AFOs when they're doing the training, um, so that the child then is forced to use actively as they can the, the weakened muscles, and that has really shown a lot of benefit. Um, so in terms of, you know, like with FES, uh, with exercise, the more um, activation that you can do of the muscle, then potentially the better the descending control you can have over that muscle, um, and so your motor performance might be better, spasticity might be um, less, and so that's our thinking um, if you can't, um, you know, of course, use the AFOs for safety. Um, uh, but if you can not use them and activate the muscles yourselves, then that might be um, a better way to do it. So on average, typically developing child will, you know, be standing for 8 to 12 hours a day compared to, you know, child with cerebral palsy, which is much less. So they're standing and using their muscles Uh, much less. And potentially, you know, if you can do the same activity levels as a typically developing child, then uh, that would uh, potentially, you know, reduce some of the spasticity and the contractures that develop over
0: time. Yeah, we feel the same way.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the best ways we have found for someone who is very high tone in their calves or very spastic in their calves is to get them weight-bearing, to get them standing. Then their heels come down and everything settles.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: People are blown away by it because they're like, how? Well, we are giving the nervous system the input it needs to reorganize and to understand what is going on.
2: Right, and stretching the muscles and allowing um, potentially remodeling of the muscle fibers um, that are because um, you will have changes in um, the expression of different proteins in the muscle based on the amount of loading the muscle receives, the uh, potentially the amount of sensory activation from that muscle to the spinal cord. So there's a lot of uh, factors involved in trying to um, get more repetitive loading and activation um, in, inside these muscles.
1: So one of the things we say here, correct me if I'm wrong, we say a lot of spinal cord injuries and those with cerebral palsy are sensory seeking. So a reason their spasticity becomes apparently worse is because they are sensory seeking and they are in an absence of sensory information.
2: Right, exactly. Yeah, that's what our thought is as well. And that's what we're doing experiments on to see whether or not continued pattern activation with FES will help to reduce spasticity and some of the abnormal Um, plasticity that happens in the neurons and we're lucky because we can you know measure these neurons specifically with these genetic uh, tools that we have Um, and so our only hope is to you know be great if we could go in and specifically activate uh, particular interneurons in the spinal cord to help spasticity because I think that's the best way to do it but unfortunately humans don't have genetic markers (laughs) they're not genetically modified yet (laughs) where we can do this. Um, but maybe the more specific drugs that we can use that particularly target these neurons that we're looking at that have less side effects, you know, that don't have uh, side effects up in the brain, because a lot of these drugs are oral, and they're going to, you know, go to the brain, they're going to go to the spinal cord. But can we find ones that, you know, target specific things in the spinal cord? That would be, that would be um, a goal.
0: So then, what are your thoughts on intrathecal baclofen? You read my mind, Nancy. <laughs>
2: Right. Yeah, and I think that's used as a very, you know, last case resort for people and people with very severe uh, spasticity, uh, especially people with uh, head trauma um, where the spasticity is uh, very high and there is no residual descending motor function. So in terms of, you know, um, hygiene care, um, patient management in very severe cases. um, But for, uh, you know, cases where that's not, um, you know, an issue, then, yeah, intrathecal baclofen, you're getting pretty high dose of baclofen into the spinal cord. There are complications. I think, if I can remember, one in 200, there's a high complication of intrathecal baclofen because if uh, the tube comes out, then you go into um, baclofen withdrawal. Um, which uh, turns into a, a serotonin syndrome, so you have to um, treat it with uh, anti-serotonergic drugs. Interestingly, and, and they don't know why, but um, if you do have an intrathecal baclofen pump, it really requires um, coordinated monitoring with the um, spasticity doctors that you're getting these treatments from. So it really, um, you just don't give someone a baclofen pump and tell them, okay goodbye. There there really is tight control over it because of the risk of um, uh, a sudden withdrawal, because you're getting pretty high doses in there.
1: I mean, we notice even with our clients, some of them that come off of their baclofen, you know, cold turkey, there are side effects. There's withdrawals. Definitely not a good thing. We always recommend you do it in partnership with your spasticity doctor.
2: Right. Yeah. You just got to, you have to uh, wean these drugs down slowly. And always a good idea, too, is if you've been on antispastic drugs since your initial injury and you haven't really talked to your doctor about whether or not you should be on this dose or should I be trying to decrease it. Uh, Because I hear, you know, and this is just anecdotal, but, you know, people who have come off don't really notice a huge difference, and that's what you found, too, being... But um, you always—it's of, of paramount importance that you need to talk with your um, your doctor before you change any of your antispastic mm-hmm. medication because yeah, you could um, you could have some dangerous side effects like uh, seizure activity or mm-hmm. um, yeah, uh, blood pressure changes, yeah, some dangerous stuff that can happen. But the, the conversation with the doctor about your antispastic meds—you know—don't be afraid to go in and, and reevaluate it uh, every year, every other year.
0: I agree with that. When I went off of mine, I did do it under the guidance of my spasticity doctor. I did notice that for about two weeks after I was off of it completely, my spasms were really, really bad. But I don't know how much of that was in my head because I was expecting it to get worse, right? And so that's a variable you can't really ever measure.
2: Right. And that, yeah, and that's why it's probably more um, secure to do it with your doctor, because yeah. if you're having these side effects, you think it's one thing, but um, they might tell you, no, no, don't worry about it. Um, it's just, uh, you know, one of the phases, and, and it's safe, and it's okay.
0: Do you know if there's anything else out there for the treatment of spasticity?
2: No. <laughs> Unfortunately, no. Yeah, except for the only other possibility is this drug that we're trying to uh, see if we can make ourselves. Um, but otherwise, on the horizon, um, other than exercise, you know, the, um, you know using the XO, uh, which has um, anecdotally... And maybe a couple of studies have shown that it's helping with um, bladder because we didn't talk about spastic bladder as well. And so that's really uh, that's been shown to help, um, at least in preliminary studies, um, uh, bladder and bowel function.
0: Just to clarify, that's the exoskeleton you're talking about?
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cool.
2: So essentially getting someone upright and standing helps the motility. And um, I can't remember don't quote me on this, but if it was helping with the spastic bladder as well. Um, The other uh, research that's in development, uh, I believe, was um, intraspinal stimulation Mm -hmm. for bladder control. And um, I'm not sure how far along that has gone um, in terms of uh, relaxing the bladder. um, Sorry, contracting the bladder, but relaxing the sphincter. Uh, muscle to allow the urine through. That's very difficult to do with um, spinal cord stimulation. But I think uh, I know one person who's um, still continuing to research that.
1: All right. On the topic of research, then, let's talk about research studies. Sure. So what should someone look for in a study if they're looking to participate?
2: Sure. Sure. Well, I guess the one thing is, is there going to be any benefit for me? Immediate benefit, and of course those are always, you know, the good studies to be involved in. So if uh, someone is uh, testing a certain treatment therapy, uh, we used to do studies where we did treadmill training, and so we would train um, people for, you know, a couple of months, and so they got, you know, physical therapy, free physical therapy for, uh, you know, six months, sometimes even a year. So those are studies that have an immediate benefit, but yet, there's other studies where the, the benefit isn't immediate, but the potential benefit, you know, many many years down the road is even bigger. And so you're going in as a research subject, likely not to help you, but to help other people that are going to have an injury maybe 20 years in the future. But uh, the one thing to you know really um, be mindful of are the risk factors when you're uh, uh, recruit, when you're volunteering for an experiment. So if you're getting a drug uh, trial, really understand what the risk factors are, what the side effects are, and don't be afraid to um, ask these questions. Even, you know, talk to your doctor about it if you feel that the researchers aren't, um, you know, giving you the entire uh, explanation. Hello ethically they should, and they they likely will. But, you know, sometimes these drug studies are sponsored by drug companies that have a vested interest in uh, recruiting subjects. And um, so how much of it is, you know, money driven, how much of it is, um, you know, for the patient benefit. So really don't be afraid to ask about the risk factors and and really understand what they are. And this also goes for Physical therapy, um, clinical trials as well, What are the risk factors of, for example, um, being in an exoskeleton study, walking, you know, is it going to uh, produce any bed sores or any, um, you know, uh, injury, uh, bone issues, especially if you have weak bones. Um, so anything that you think might be a risk factor that the researcher hasn't really thought of, well, oh, you know, be vocal about that because maybe they just haven't thought about it. Uh, because, you know, it's your lived experience. And just open communication and, you know, always feel free to talk to your own doctor about uh, any research experiment that you want to volunteer for.
1: So there's a lot of people that are injured and many are looking for that cure, that quick fix. So are there any red flags associated with studies? Some things that pop up that indicate maybe you shouldn't participate in that study?
2: I guess, uh, you know, claims, that they, you know, seem a bit unrealistic to you. Um, I know, you know, one of the big trials that are going on that has received a lot of press are the uh, epidural spinal cord stimulation trials because they really show, you know, the true success stories. Mm -hmm. But yet for every success story, there's going to be someone who is implanted with an epidural stimulator that uh, didn't receive as much motor improvement. So um, you have to go in with your eyes open on those. Um, and it looks like here in Alberta, um, we might be starting those trials, um, you know, very soon. Um, uh, there's a professor by the name of um, Aaron Phillips in, uh, in Calgary uh, who's received some, um, some money, and he's worked with the people in Switzerland and in Louisville um, d- using epidural stimulation for, um, and his interest is looking at cardiovascular function. Right control of that so there's a potential that that might be starting up as well right and this is mainly um, just looking at uh, cardiovascular function rather than motor function yeah so that's yeah that's exciting but um, you know in terms of big red flags for studies um, uh, yeah if there's any claims that you think they're a little bit exaggerated um, if it's coming from a pharmaceutical company Uh, typically you know reason uh, or if uh, you know the and if you think too that the ask is too much if you know they're asking you to come every you know uh, every week to be tested or you know yeah, you can um, talk about that
1: as well so really you're wanting to vet who you're going to participate for exactly understand what they're actually researching don't go in with rose-colored glasses really understand the realm and the spectrum.
2: Right. So what's expected of you and um, uh, what you expect the researchers to do. Mm-hmm. So if you, you know, you want more monitoring or if you want more assistance. So as long as the expectations on both sides of the uh, table um, are met, and even in terms of, you know, what are the results? Mm-hmm. So can you explain to me um, the results of the experiment that I, you know, just participated in? Then, you know, that's your right to know. Um, because you put in the time and effort and um, so if you can get uh, you know, a description of you know what your results were, then, then that's important as well. And the researchers should be providing you with that too.
1: So we've talked about the big red flags. What's, what is the flip side to that?
2: Right. So what are the benefits of uh, participating in research? And what I found just interacting with um, I think I've probably researched on over 50, 60, people with spinal cord injuries over the past 20 years and it's the relationships that you make with people, the the friendships that you make and the camaraderie, so quite often you'll have you know a couple of people spinal cord injuries in the lab doing things and people get to meet one another. They get to see their situation against other people. So exactly what happens here when you know clients meet clients. We can also, if a person has a, a some clinical problem, we can't diagnose it or treat it, but we can always refer them to the um, spinal cord doctors and say, "Well, I really think you should talk to your doctor about this." Or, um, yeah, maybe you should go get your wheelchair reseated or, you know, take a look at your antispastic medication. Um, So it's a way to kind of reassess where you are, and we can always provide you with um, helpful links to, um, you know, the people that we think you need to
1: see. Awesome. We kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but the conflict of interest in the study. You mentioned the part of pharmaceutical companies. Would there be any conflict of interest from, like, a university?
2: Not if... um, there's no company involved, so but for a conflict of interest, for example, since I'm it's my research project, I really shouldn't be asking a spinal cord patient to uh, participate in my study. It should actually go through an intermediary. So we, I have people in the lab um, who will do the asking for me, so that way no one is um, feels uh, obligated to uh, you know be in my research study just because they don't want to hurt my feelings. <laughs> And trust me, you won't hurt my feelings if you say no to me. So <laughs> anybody can say no to me, no problem. Um, or if there's something uncomfortable that they are going to do uh, because, you know, they want to receive the treatment. They want to keep getting the, you know, electrical stimulation or the therapy or the drug. Um, but if they disagree with something, then they might not express that. And so, you know, never feel, be afraid of uh, expressing any concern that you have.
1: Now let's talk about your lab, the motor control laboratory at the University of Alberta. So let's go into what you are currently studying. I know you talked a little bit about it, but let's go more in depth. Uh, And how far along are you on your study?
2: Sure. So yeah, as I um, talked about before, we're looking at um, these inhibitory GABA systems um, and how they uh, may be involved in spasticity and how they may be controlling the flow of sensory input to the spinal cord. And all of this comes from the animal work, and that's why it's so important to do the um, initial stuff in the animal work. Although the human work guides the animal work, so um, when the investigator, my, my husband actually, Dave Bennett, is doing the animal work, he um, started to do the um, animal work on the spinal cord injured rat, um, rats and he just didn't know where to go and so I said okay well let me do some experiments on um, people with spinal cord injury and we observed some things and I'm like okay well go for this part you know it might be this and sure enough um, he can then direct his studies a little bit uh, more focused that are more clinically relevant and so we're at a point where we're now going back and um, seeing whether or not the ant the the, uh, the data that he's getting and the findings he's getting in the animals are similar to the uh, spinal cord
1: um, uh,
2: condition in humans.
1: Very cool. Is your study currently recruiting?
2: Yes, um, until after COVID. So we had to <laughs> shut down. Um, as of March 17th, I think we had to shut down. Yeah, and um, but now they're allowing uh, some experiments to uh to come back online again. So potentially, um, we're probably going to start up uh, and running experiments again in July. Yeah. And we're we're looking for people with spinal cord injuries that are both on baclofen and who are off baclofen, because we want to see if there's any differences in the uh, control of uh, sensory information to the spinal cord in people on and off the drug.
1: Is there any limitation to how long they have been off the drug for?
2: No. No, just as long as we record uh, how long they've been off the drug for, yeah. And uh, people who are on the drug, what their dosage is, um, then we can compare the two. So this is a way in which we can look at the effects of baclofen and what um, the activation of these GABA-B receptors are doing without giving uh, these GABA drugs um, to uh, to people. Although we're giving the drug to uh, people without injuries, to, as well, just to see um, how uh, that controls sensory inflow.
0: Is there a way to know what studies are going on and how to sift through them? I know I've looked, and there's a lot to sift through.
2: Right. Your best bet would be to um, email some of the researchers that have more intimate knowledge about these experiments. So um, we can put in my email address um, on the podcast, um, and we can say my email address. It's mag 4 at ualberta.ca, so you can uh, give me an email, and you can also talk to other researchers that are more involved in the animal research and who are more intimately, have a uh, better understanding of the clinical trials that are going on. So, for example, uh, Dr. Karim Fawad, he has a good uh, understanding of um, you know what the uh, most promising and um, I'm using my quotes here. Legitimate mm-hmm. clinical trials are for um, uh, people with spinal cord injuries because, yeah, if you look at, uh, I think there's some websites that list them all, and there's hundreds of them, so yeah. it's really difficult to to wade through. Yeah. So I think it'd be a great idea for uh, maybe Krim to come on in this podcast yeah. and you know uh, uh, you know give his opinion as to which clinical trials are uh, you know are ones that are uh, most worth being uh, involved in.
1: And for those that maybe. Are a little bit more skeptical about experiments and research and maybe have a dark ages view on experiments what does coming into your lab look like
2: oh sure you would uh, come in of course sign a consent form but pretty much you would uh, you know just be in your wheelchair and uh, we do uh, stimulation of nerves on your leg so we would prep the skin area first with uh, alcohol put uh, sticky electrodes over your nerves and record from your muscles and uh, just ask you to um, contract, if you can contract, or just sit there while we um, stimulate your nerves and record from your muscles. So actually, it's really boring. <laughs> Hate to. <laughs> but because you're going to sit there for well, maybe one, one and a half hours while we just uh, fiddle with your leg, stimulate. Uh, some people might feel the stimulation, some people might not. And if you can feel, if you have sensation, we'll make sure that it's uh, not painful and, you know, continually talk to you and make sure that the stimulation is okay, make sure we're not going high so that we would induce any autonomic dysreflexia in anybody who has um, propensity for that. And, uh, and then you'll just watch us looking at squiggles on a computer screen and giggling and getting excited about them and probably wondering, boy, we're nerds. So it's a, it's a nerd fest, essentially, watching us do, do these things. But, uh, we're always there to a- ask questions. And so it's a very casual. There's maybe, um, oh, two or three of us in the lab at one time. Um, my graduate student, uh, Krista, she'll, uh, she would be there helping out. I have lab technician Jennifer. So we're um, around the corner in a nice isolated part of the lab, so um, you know it's nice and and private. There's accessible washrooms
1: close by.
0: Yep, I've been to your lab. You have some pretty sweet equipment in there. Yeah. (laughs) And so Bean,
1: rolling in there, what are your first thoughts
0: on her lab? It just looks really professional. It's close to the U of A hospital in on one of those buildings.
2: That's right, the Heritage Building.
0: I didn't remember the name. It's clean, it's new, and it just seemed very professional, but also chill. It's not a stuffy kind of environment where people are wearing lab coats and holding clipboards.
2: No, we're pretty relaxed. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we try to make you feel as comfortable as possible because we know that, you know, this might be a new environment for someone. And the more relaxed you are and the more that, you know... You can tell us what's going on with yourself. The better the experiment is going to be, and we don't want to push anybody so that they're uncomfortable. Um, you know, th- there's you know, if you want to go on a washroom break, hey, eh, no problem. We can undo things. So, uh, you know, the primary focus is the well-being of the participant first and foremost. But we also want to make your time worthwhile. So we want you know make sure that the results we're getting are valid and are going to you know move move things forward. So um, we try not to go over two hours of experiments because it's a, quite a long time to be sitting there for, you know, an hour, an hour and a half. Um, and uh, and uh, we always try to make people feel comfortable enough that if there's something wrong, then just please tell us. But most of the time we're joking, we're, we're laughing, we're getting to know one another, making conversations. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty friendly atmosphere.
1: One thing we didn't ask about your study, what's your demographic? It's spinal cord injury, but is there an age limit or gender or anything like that?
2: Uh, basically, the ethics approval we've got for people uh, aged 18 years and older. And that's, uh, and I, I think, below 75. Yeah, so between the ages of 18 and 75. Um, both genders, complete, incomplete. Doesn't matter what medication you're on. I think, yeah, so really for... So as long as you... Um, Uh, Oh, uh, and as long as you're um, uh, not susceptible to autonomic dysreflexia with low-intensity stimulation, which most people aren't.
0: Does it matter what level your injury is at?
2: No, and it doesn't matter the level of the injury, no. And as long as you don't have uh, peripheral nerve injury. So if you have a very low um, injury, like lumbar or equina. Um, in those cases, we can't record reflexes because there's peripheral nerve damage. So in those cases, um, uh, we, we couldn't do the experiment.
1: For those of you who aren't aware, the spinal cord typically ends at L2. So if you have an injury below that, that's what we consider that peripheral nerve injury.
0: Yeah, exactly. How long is the study going on for?
2: Oh, probably for another uh, two years.
0: Okay. Yeah.
2: Although I'm always continuing doing experiments, so there's always going to be, you know... Um, uh, some opportunity to come in and uh, volunteer for an experiment. So uh, I'm going to retire when I'm 65, so I got, I got another 13 years. So
0: Yeah, because I know a lot of our clients and my friends want to be able to participate in studies, but often don't know how to even navigate the system or to find a study. And so I think if you passed along some information or your grad student passed along some information, we'd be happy to share it to get more participants. Great. We firmly believe that research is important. Right. Especially in this field where everything is changing so fast as technology changes. We have to do what we can to at least keep up with it.
2: Right. And let us be a conduit for you. You know, if you want to flash us an email, um, I can put my website uh, on the podcast info. And, um, you know, uh, because there are other other, um, experiments that are going on. I know Vivian, Dr. Vivian Mouchoir, is going to be uh, starting up a experiment on transcutaneous stimulation. So this is where you just put the uh, stimulating electrodes over the spinal cord, but it's on the skin still, and to see whether or not that can activate both the spinal cord um, that controls the arms and ones that control the legs, and doing this during um, cycling. So that's another opportunity as well. So I don't think they're ready yet for um, doing it in spinal cord, um, people with spinal cord injuries. Uh, I think they're just doing control subjects, non-injured subjects right now. But, um, you know, go to the U of A website, um, the, uh, the um, Neuroscience and Mental Health Institute. You can find um, the links to the websites um, for um, Dr. Mushwar, myself, David Collins, and also the, um, the Sensory Motor Rehabilitation Neuroscience Group. At the U of A, um, we've got uh, descriptions of um, all the researchers doing experiments as well. So that's a little bit more focused um, there too. So we can put that information on on the podcast too.
1: We'll list that in the description.
2: <clears throat> we did get a lot of people volunteering right before COVID because of you guys, um, but. Unfortunately, I couldn't uh, accept them because we had to shut the lab down. So, I know you, I still remember you guys that recruited. So, we'll, we'll be calling we'll, for sure we'll be calling you guys when uh, things open up more.
1: So, our last question for you, as a researcher, what's your dream study for spasticity?
2: My dream study is to really understand, you know, when a spasm occurs, exactly what is activating the, spon- the motor neurons in the spinal cord to produce that and what is producing these prolonged muscle activation and why is it that after injury you get a prolonged muscle contraction and a very forceful one um, after injury when you wouldn't get the same thing before the injury. So what exactly is happening to the sensory inputs, the interneurons, the motor neurons, the ion channels, the currents? the genes, the, you know, I want to know every single, you know, piece of the puzzle. And in order to figure that out, you need the animal experiments, you need to verify it in the humans to get the whole picture. And I'd love to have a team of um, people making drugs that can design a drug for me to, uh, you know, really specifically activate those parts that, um, you know, shouldn't be activated, um, but yet not produce any other bad side effects, or reduce motor function? Because that's always the problem. You give an antispastic, it reduces spasticity, but you might also be dampening down your residual motor function. Um, So can there be some, you know, other virus that we inject that specifically goes into particular neurons that targets a particular ion channel to fix things? That would be my dream.
1: Awesome. I mean, it sounds like you're tackling a part of it. You're tackling one puzzle piece uh, with your current study. You're working towards that, and we love having researchers that are willing to tackle such a challenging topic.
2: And I love it doing it, so it's not work to me, so yeah.
0: Your passion really shows. It really does. It exudes out of you. The first time I met you, I was really taken aback. You were so passionate for it. Not a lot of people are doing research for spasticity, and that makes me feel good because I have so much of it. The response I usually get from medical professionals is, whoa, you have so, you have more spasticity than anyone I've ever met, and I don't know what to do with you. Right. And so I'm glad that you are researching this stuff, so that clinicians and physicians and physiatrists can have a better idea. Even spasticity doctors can have more information and be able to treat their patients better.
2: And my role too is to train the next generation of, you know, neuroscientists. So, you know, if there's someone with a spinal cord injury that is interested in understanding spasticity, like science, you know, come contact me as well if you're interested in doing graduate studies. Because um, I've, you know, graduated. Uh, A couple of people now who are professors and they're continuing with spinal cord injury research. And so you just got to keep it going. Uh, So if anybody's out there that, you know, wants to do science and interested, you know, come, come talk to us as well.
0: Thanks for coming on our show. We loved having you you're an excellent guest. Thank you so much. You gave a lot of great information. We were actually going to have Monica and Kareem come on, come in to speak to our clients in person about research studies and stuff. But again, COVID has really changed the trajectory of things. So now we're doing it on a podcast. You gave a lot of great information. So thank you very much for sharing and for coming on our show.
2: Oh, you're welcome. I always love coming here. So it's great. (laughs) you guys are great too.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. If you have any questions, hit us up on our website or you can email Monica directly.
1: We'll list all the contact info in the description below.
0: All right. See you next time.